Turn in your Bibles to Jonah, Jonah chapter 3, and you'll need a Bible, so the guys have some, they're going to make their way to the back, and if you need a Bible, get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you. Keep it, bring it back each Lord's Day as we look at God's Word together. Jonah 3. Today is National Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's observed each year on the Sunday that's closest to January 22nd. That's the day in 1973 that the Supreme Court handed down its infamous decision in Roe v. Wade that made abortion a constitutional right in all 50 states. Now, thankfully, 18 months ago, on June 24 of 2022, the High Court overturned Roe. And now access to abortion is on a state-by-state basis. Since Roe is no longer, I'd be in favor of moving the date for Sanctity of Life to June, but as yet that move has not been made, and whenever it is each year, we take time to focus on it because few things are as important as our understanding of who we are as humanity before God and what the implications of that are for our thinking, for our views on public policy, and especially our perspective on our fellow human beings. Next Sunday, we're going to return to our study in the book of Psalms, but today, we consider what Scripture says about the value of every human life, not only inside the womb, but outside and throughout all of life. Let's bow then and ask God to help us as we do. Father, we thank you again that we are here. We're here by your divine appointment and your permission. We thank you for the work that you have done in us, in our hearts, to cause us to desire to be here. Lord, we want to learn from you and of you so that we can be like you. And so we ask you to help us as we open your word, to apply it accurately to our lives, to have open hearts, to be changed, changed into the image of Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. We'll get to the outline that you received when you came in 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 just a bit. But whether we view others properly will very much depend on how we see ourselves in relation to them. Whether we view others properly is very much going to depend on how we see ourselves in relation to those other people. Scripture asks this probing question. What do you have that you did not receive? And the expected answer, of course, is nothing. We'll see the context of that question later in the message, but but for now, just consider the implications of the fact that any good things that you are and any good traits that you have are not because of you. If you were born in this country, the greatest on earth, then who determined that? When the Apostle Paul stood before philosophers in Athens, Greece, in Acts chapter 17, he said this, From one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Now that passage has been translated this way, From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and determine the time set for them, and the exact places where they should live. So who determined that? Not me, not you, but God. 
Your mentors and influences were brought into your life by circumstances that were put in motion before you were ever born. Your gifting and your opportunities were granted and afforded you without consultation with you ahead of time. And that's just about life in general, your relative natural advantages compared to others. But then there are, more importantly, your spiritual advantages. If you are a child of God today, it's because you were brought under the sound of the gospel message at a point in time, and God used someone or some situation to cause you to see your need of Christ and to bring you to himself. For me, that was in 1981, when I was 19. As most of you know, my dad was a pastor, and so I heard from a child the gospel message. And yet, so did my three siblings. And only one of them ever made a profession of faith. So why me? Why you? What do we have that we did not receive? And if you forget the sovereignty that has preceded the events of your life and the spiritual impoverishment with which we all come into this world, then, friends, you have set yourself up for pride. Spiritual pride. Because you see, here's what the Bible says. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. And then it goes on to say, like the rest, We were by nature deserving of wrath. So why me? Why you? What made the difference? The next verse gives that answer, and notice to whom it points. It doesn't start with, because I did something, because you did something. Here's what it says. But because of His great love for us, God. One of two great contrasts in the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, but God. Despite where I was and what I was, but God. The other one is Romans chapter 3 and verse 21, where Paul begins his argument about the plight of humanity, going back to chapter 1 and verse 18, and he brings it all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20, and then he says, But now, a righteousness from God has been made known. But God, and what did God do? It says, that verse does, and the one after it, but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive, even when we were dead. And He could just say, He made us alive, He's already said you were dead, but he goes on to make sure you know you were made alive even though you were dead, spiritually, in transgressions. And then to top that off, to summarize why that is necessary to understand the last phrase, it is by grace you have been saved. So it's not, I was in this condition, but I. It's, I was in that dead condition, but God. And it's by grace, then, that we have been saved. Now, if you have a tough time with God being the one who did what was spiritually necessary in you to bring you to Himself, 
Then I say to you, friends, solemnly that the seeds of pride have taken root in your heart as you scramble in your mind to find some difference, any difference found in me, found in you, that makes you different from others. And God, of course, knows that tendency of the prideful human heart. And so regularly, Scripture issues this refrain, as it does in this very passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Later in that passage, it says again, it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works. And here's why all of that is necessary, so that no one can boast. And, and quoting the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, the New Testament says this elsewhere, as it is written in the prophet Jeremiah, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Failure to remember that God and God alone gets the glory always in all things will lead you to indulge in spiritual pride. You may be a nice guy or gal. You may, be well, you may well be an accomplished nice guy or gal. You may come off as a humble, accomplished nice guy or gal. But if credit to God and Him alone in your salvation and life is a tough pill for you to swallow, then you're not as humble as you thought. Pride lurks in your heart and is seeking to manifest itself in other ways. Remember this. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord said, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. The boasting will be in me and me alone. I have set up all of life and in particular, my plan of salvation, so that that will always be the case. He will yield his glory to no one and no thing, including you or me. But we easily forget, as did Jonah, which is why I've asked you to turn there. Now, I mentioned that outline that you received when you, you came in. And we'll get to that, as I say, in still a bit. But my approach today is going to be to explain where Jonah found himself, and then the outline points are application of some truths that Jonah and we easily forget. Most of you know the story of Jonah, the reluctant preacher. God told him to go to Nineveh and preach to them, but Jonah went in the opposite direction. A violent storm came up on the ship on which he was sailing in that opposite direction. Jonah knew and confessed that he was the cause. He was thrown overboard, swallowed by a great fish where he resided for three days, was deposited by the fish on the shore, and here is Jonah's reaction in chapter 3. Verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now it goes on to say that Jonah not only went, 
but he preached to the Ninevites that they needed to repent or they would be destroyed. And verse 5 of chapter 3 says, the Ninevites believed God. Verses 6 through 9 say the king of Nineveh himself participated in this national repentance so that in verse 10 of chapter 3, we're told, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, when I was a a child and I learned this story in Sunday school, I came away thinking that Jonah was swallowed by the great fish as punishment for his disobedience. So kind of the moral of the story was for me, obey God or you might get swallowed by a big fish. But the fish was not punishment, but mercy. At the end of chapter 1, we're told that it was the Lord who intentionally and sovereignly brought the fish to Jonah and Jonah to the fish. Chapter 1, verse 17, says the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And I say that this was God's mercy because that's how Jonah saw it. Throughout chapter 2, inside the fish, Jonah is thankful to the Lord for saving him from sure death in that raging sea. The fish, in fact, was God's answer to Jonah's prayer for rescue. So chapter 2 and verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good, I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And so... All is well now. Jonah disobeyed, but repented and cried out to God, and God saved him, rescued him, delivered him physically, and all of which is what salvation means spiritually. Rescue, deliverance, and Jonah did as God originally said. The Ninevites then are rescued, delivered, saved, and all was good. Except there was another thing that I misunderstood about the Jonah story as a child. And that was Jonah's reason for not going in the first place. I was told it was because the Ninevites were fearsome people whose cruelty to foreigners was legendary, and so Jonah was understandably afraid to go for his own safety. Surely don't have me go there to those people. What might happen to me, a Jew going to these Gentile cruel people. But it turns out that was not the reason for his hesitation. And we see that in the last chapter of Jonah, chapter 4, verse 1. But to this, 
To Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. Well, it seems like everything turned out okay. Jonah's life was spared. He goes and preaches. The people repent. We could put a period on that. Except there's chapter 4. And Jonah is angry. Why is he angry? Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? So apparently Jonah had said to the Lord, back when he was first told to go to Nineveh, that he was afraid to go, not due to fear of the Ninevites, but for fear that God would be good to them. The middle of verse 2, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And we can't have that. The Ninevites got to get what they deserve. So here's what you have in Jonah. You have someone who has been given many, many gifts that he did not deserve. He was born into a privileged nation, Israel. Among a privileged people, the Jews, God's chosen people. So that in your New Testament, Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul asks, what advantage is there in being a Jew? Much in every way. The Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. This privileged man from his privileged from this privileged people and nation, does not want to offer the opportunity to a Gentile nation to repent. Because in his heart of hearts, he believes he deserves it, and they do not. And remember, he has been, he has just a few weeks earlier been praising God for mercifully saving him from death by providing the fish. But even as he thanked God for his mercy, he harbored thoughts that he was worthy. His privileges, rather than being truly humbling, were sources of pride as he compared himself and his people to others, and he found them undeserving. Now, of course, he was right that the Ninevites were undeserving, but so were the Jews undeserving. And so am I. And so are you. And so are all of those in whatever condition and in whatever sin and from whatever country. Just like me, just like you. Jonah forgot. As so often we forget. That, as I say in the outline, human dignity applies to every life. God had brought a violent wind when Jonah was in the ship going in the wrong direction. And then the story of Jonah, the book of Jonah says that God provided, it used that word, he provided a fish to save his life. And then it says God commanded, it uses that word, he commanded the fish to place Jonah on dry ground. And now he's again supplying for Jonah's needs despite his selfish pride. Verse 6 of chapter 4. The Lord God provided 
So here's God yet again graciously providing a leafy plant, and he made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But to continue his object lesson in Jonah's life, the next verse says, at dawn the next day, verse 7, God provided, so he's provided a fish, he's provided the plant, he's now provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. And verse 8, when the sun rose, God provided. You see, you guys get the idea, the providing and the commanding and God's in charge of all of this? He provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, Jonah said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. (coughs) Jonah the prophet had a deep animosity toward people not like him. So much so he'd rather die and see them get the mercy that he received and is still receiving from God. But the Lord said, verse 10, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their left hand, their right hand from their left. That's the end of the book of Jonah. God expressing his concern about all people. Expecting his people then, who are to emulate his character, to have concern about all people as well. But Jonah didn't. Jonah liked people who were like Jonah. And let's be honest, we like people who are like us. So I ask you, as I ask myself, how do you you refer to people not like you? How do you see people who do not look like you? How do you feel about people who have not accomplished what you have. With whom is it that as you sit here, you are angry? Or you have been angry this week as you watched the television and the fear mongers told you how bad it is and how bad they are and they're coming for you and for your stuff. Do you resent others? Do you boil over when you hear someone speaking in a different language in your country or bringing different customs from theirs? Are you all nervous right now? What's he going to say next? What's he going to delve into? All right, look. Immigration... And legal versus illegal, that's a huge and important policy issue, and I'm not making claims about that in this message other than to say, friends, you can be opposed to illegal immigration and still be for the immigrant. You're for them because you have compassion on them and you do not see yourself as better 
than anybody. Or let's apply it to another area. How do you see homosexuals? Perhaps one way to gauge that is to ask how we see adulterers, even heterosexual adulterers. If we are going to condemn homosexuality, and that's not an if, since we are, because the Bible does, so we will, and we must. And we will not compromise on that or anything else. But since we are going to do that, I would say this to you, brothers and sisters, let's do so humbly, because we're no better, and let's do so humbly especially as so many of us, and I include myself in this number, promote people politically who slept with a porn star while his third wife was pregnant with their child and who has been found liable in a court of law for sexually assaulting a woman. Yeah, that's all true and more. Now let me be clear as I was in our recent series, God's Design for Sexuality, homosexuality is sin condemned by God, acceptance of which is indication of God's judgment on a society so that in the words of Romans chapter 1, he, quote, gives them over. That is, he removes his hand of restraint so that, in effect, all hell can break loose. But I can believe that homosexuality and its promotion is heinous sin, as I most certainly do, and yet I can have compassion on the sinner while I hate the sin. I can vote for a person who's a moral leper, holding my nose the whole time, because I find the other guy's policies far worse for human flourishing on important moral issues like abortion and marriage and transgenderism, but all the while I must lament the sin in my own camp and avoid at all costs making our battle against flesh and blood. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And we are entering another election year. I can't believe that we got these two guys running. I said these two guys. I started to use another word. I mean, I just can't believe it. It's amazing. But here we are. This Wednesday, we have Jonathan Lehman coming. I plan to have him come over a year ago for this very reason, to prepare us to keep our focus on what's important in a divided political age. Because, friends, adulterers and homosexuals are to find welcome here as both need Christ and need to repent and so need to hear the gospel. And when they do, we will rejoice. In the meantime, we love them and rejoice that we have the opportunity to minister to them without compromising God's truth, whatever their political affiliation. Human dignity applies to every life, first, because it reflects, I say in your outline, God. Every human life is a reflection of God. Now, I said verse 11 that I read earlier at the end of Jonah chapter 4. That's the end of the book of Jonah. And if you were looking at the passage, you noticed that there are still four other words there. 
The actual four final words of the book of Jonah are, and also many animals. <laughs> and some of you were thinking, he left that out because he doesn't like dogs. <laughs> but no, I left it out on purpose for this point, and that is, God is separating the animals out from people. Notice in verse 11, he says, I have these people who don't know their left from their right, 120,000 strong in this great city of Nineveh. Should I not have concern for them? And many animals also. He tags on the animals. Separating the animals from people shows his priority and focus is humans. Animals exist for humans, not the other way around. God cares for all his creatures, but he has special focus on humanity because it, humanity alone, reflects God. Going back to creation and the first chapter in your Bible, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That was the original design. But sin has made it necessary for the image to be restored. And that's why we have passages like Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So we come into this world not in the image, as we were at creation. So some then conclude that the image has been completely obliterated, it's been completely erased, but that's not the case either, and we know this for this reason. Genesis chapter 1, God creates humanity in his image. Genesis chapter 3, the fall occurs, sin enters God's otherwise good world. The image is affected for sure, but then just a few chapters later, Genesis chapter 9, here's what it says. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. Here's why. For because in the image of God has God made mankind. So even after the entrance of sin into God's world, the image still remains, at least in a fashion, distorted though it be and needing full restoration though it does. Every human being still bears the marks of the image of God. It remains, it's been distorted, and sometimes almost beyond recognition. As sin has its way in the lives of people and corruption occurs in the life of a person, in the life of a, a community, in the life of a nation, you start to see people acting in ways without restraint and you wonder where is the image of God in that person. Sometimes it's almost non-detectable, making it hard to see and difficult to appreciate and therefore, and here's the point for us friends, easy to forget. As our culture continues to degenerate, it's going to be easy for us to forget every last person is made in the image of God. And every last person, therefore, has a dignity. It applies to every life because it reflects God and, I say in your outline, because it reflects grace. So I'm looking at a person, I'm dealing with a person, a coworker, a family member, somebody in the community, people that I see on television. And I know that the Bible teaches that they are image bearers, but boy, it's really hard to see. 
Where is there any trait, characteristic, attribute of God that's obvious in that person? And as I look at that, how should I think about it? What, so why has God allowed this person to continue to defy him as they are? And I'm saying here it's because it reflects grace. You see, the fact that a person is still breathing, despite their sin and its effects and how far it may have gone and how it has made that person look, God has kept them alive and delayed His coming in order to give time. Peter wrote, the Apostle Peter wrote, of those who scoff at the idea of the second coming, and they ask, well, where is this? All things go on as they have from the beginning, Peter quotes them as, as saying. But Peter reminded them of the flood. And just as the flood came upon the world that was then, so also God's judgment is sure and will come. But God, says Peter, holds off for a gracious purpose. You're saying it's not going to happen because it's delayed. Peter says, no, there's a good reason that God has delayed. Here's what he said. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You're scoffing at God, giving you this opportunity, when all the while what God is doing is giving you time to stop scoffing and repent. Now, when it says God is not wanting... You could translate that. It's not God's will. God is not willing, in fact, some translations say. But that is not God's sovereign will, but rather His moral will. And if you have a pen and you have that piece of paper in front of you, you might just jot that down. Sovereign will, moral will. I've talked about it, taught about it a bunch of times over the years. But it's important for you to know the difference. God's sovereign will is everything that comes to pass. And there is nothing that comes to pass that God takes God by surprise. God has decreed all things in, in himself. That's what we mean by God's sovereign will. His moral will is what God approves and God wants. And those are not the same. There are times where God has decreed for things to happen many times that he does not want, that he does not approve. They're not his moral will. Jesus died on the cross and was murdered. That was a murder. The murderers are held responsible for doing it because they violated God's moral will. In God's sovereign will, he planned the death of Jesus before the foundation of the world. And so here, if this were God's sovereign will that no one perish, then how many people would perish? Zero. But this is an expression of his moral will, what kind of God he is, the character that he has. So no matter how bad it is in a person's life, no matter how far gone they are, rather than focus on the mess that they've made and have become, we see God's mercy in that they are still here. And as long as he gives breath and delays his coming, he's offering an opportunity to repent. Human dignity reflects God. It reflects His grace, and I say, it reflects me. It reflects you. This is why I asked Pastor Larry to read from Matthew 9, 
for our scripture reading today regarding how Jesus, when God walked among humanity, how Jesus saw humanity. He had compassion, as you heard read earlier. Seeing them as harassed and helpless, as sheep without a shepherd. And, the, and then Jesus told the apostles and us, the harvest is plentiful. You see what he's doing there? He's saying, this is how I see people. I'm sending you out to this harvest that is plentiful, and this is how you're going to need to see them. You can't hate them. You can't despise them. You can't regularly be talking about them versus me versus us. Rather, Jesus had compassion, harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. And so I and you should be able to look at others with compassion if we understand that we have nothing for which to boast ourselves. But for the grace of God, right? We say that, don't we? But for the grace of God, so go I. But we've got to ask ourselves, do I really mean that? Jonah didn't. You see, friends, the Bible teaches that we have solidarity, solidarity with every other image bearer of God. We are unified in that we both, we all come from the same two people, Adam, Adam and Eve. We have the solidarity in nature. So by human nature, we are all related and we have solidarity in our sinful nature. Because coming from the same two parents, we acquired our sinful nature from them. So we all acquired the image of God, but we also all acquired our sinfulness. And all of us have it. And it's only by God's grace and for God's purposes that it expresses, that sinful nature expresses itself differently in my life than in other people's lives. So I shouldn't look at those other lives and say, look at what a sinner they are. I should look at the sin in the life of that person and be reminded myself of what a sinner I am too. And God, thank you for sparing me, but for your grace, so go I. Now that first passage that I put on the screen this morning asked, what do you have that you did not receive? From 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, some of you will remember in 1 Corinthians that what the Corinthians were doing in their own sin was that they were creating celebrities among the various preachers who administered to them. And some names are given, Peter and Apollos and Paul. And Paul says in chapter 3 there of them, some of you say, I'm of Peter, some of you say, I'm of Paul, some of you say, I'm of Apollos. But then he goes on in chapter 4 to say, but we are simply managers, stewards of what God has given to us. None of us is greater than the, the other. And it's in that context that he asks that question, what do you have that you did not receive? But it's prefaced with this line. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? 
You see, friends, I cannot, you cannot legitimately look at other people, no matter how messed up the life, no matter how obscure the image because of sin and how far it's gone, and say of that person that I am better than you because all the, all the good gifts that you have only come to you by the gracious gifting hand of God. Human dignity applies to every life, and it applies to all of life. And it applies to, I say in the outline, pre-birth. Now, why does it apply to pre-birth? Why do we believe and teach that abortion is murder? It's because it's the ending of a human life. And so it applies to all of life, going into the womb and going back to conception. A person becomes spiritually significant as a person at the moment of conception, the Bible teaches. And that's why David could say in Psalm 51, I was sinful at birth, but then he moves back from birth to conception and says, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The only way for that to be possible, for him to be considered sinful, is if he is a person and a spiritually significant person at the time of that conception. And then in Psalm 139, famously, you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. Abortion is a moral blight on society. It devalues human life and it leads to other forms of violence when some lives are seen as expendable. The political system, though, friends, is not the ultimate answer. The politicians have failed. The politicians in Michigan have failed miserably. We had the opportunity in 2022 with the overturning of Roe v. Wade to see abortion abolished in this state. And instead, because of reasons don't get me started, of the foolhardiness of the politicians and the electorate and the people that we tried to put in office who didn't deserve to be in office and they lost. And as a result, the, the state house in Lansing for the first time in 40 years changed hands right at the time Roe v. Wade was overturned. And what it meant was a referendum with a governor that was sympathetic could go around the state and a vote had and it passed and now our state's constitution in Michigan, abortion is a constitutional right. The political system system is not the answer. The battle is to be waged, friends, life on life, with love and compassion, in churches like ours who call women to Christ and encourage them to have their babies one life at a time through things like our Downriver Pregnancy Resource Center and by encouraging adoption and fostering and modeling that before an onlooking world. So human dignity applies to all of life, to pre-birth and, I say, to post-birth. One of the mistakes that we make in, as you've heard me say, the 
pro-life movement is to only focus on unborn life. But God cares about all of life after it's born as well. So that's why we want to see, and please pray about this, we want to see our counseling center not only established, but then in the future to expand in order to help people with things like addictions, for example, from a biblical perspective, whose lives have been shattered, but God still cares about their lives. So pray for open doors to show the love of Christ through benevolence to our community and things like food distribution and clothing, school projects, in addition to the things we're already doing. And pray for our leaders. The Bible says to pray for kings and all of those in authority. And so even though they have failed, let's continue to pray for them, that they will promote policies that promote family life so that women who choose to stay at home can afford to stay at home. We don't have a system like that right now. So that young couples who want to foster a family can buy a home and establish a family. And we don't have policies like that right now. Here's your take-home truth. Christians care about all lives and for all of life because our God does. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for this day that we set aside each week to observe the Lord's day. And then especially today, our focus on the sanctity of the life that you give. Help me, help us, as we go about our days and we read and we interact and we watch. Help us to filter all that we see through the grid of your word and your truth. And in the midst of the battle, the pitched political and cultural battles, help us, Lord, not to take up arms, as it were, other than the arms given to us in your word, the gospel, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate. Lord, help us to take on the armor of God with which we will do battle for you in this age. And we ask you to use that, use us, reflecting Jesus through our lives to others, giving his word to others, we ask that you would be pleased to bring some to yourself. See them indeed repent. Abandon the things that cause such human misery so that they can move into a realm of human flourishing. Lord, we will give you the praise for this because all of this is because of you. It's from you and it's for you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.